It's Muppeturgy with a very special episode about the Peter Ustinov episode of The Muppet Show. I am Adam Grossworth, and with me are... Michal Richardson. And Christy Bauer. David isn't with us this week. We're not sure if he exploded or was eaten, but we wish him well. Uh, let's not rule out the possibility he might have gotten transformed into a mermaid or a potted plant or a Very mini true. Svengali. Yeah, or got bullied into the swamp by Peter Yusinov fans. <laughs> Blown up by <laughs> Crazy Harry. Anyway, we uh, we miss you. Uh, you'll be back with us next week. And uh, maybe it's okay that you missed this one. We are here to talk about Season 1, Episode 12, <laughs> starring Peter Ustinov. This episode was made in late July of 1976 and aired in New York on November 8th, 1976. It was the 12th episode made and the 8th aired in New York. We're actually in the same order of airing and making right now, so this uh, aired one week after the Lena Horne episode. To introduce our guest star, that's what I'm here to do. So it really makes me happy to introduce to you. Peter Ustinov was born in 1921 in England of mostly Eastern European Jewish descent. That will actually be relevant. Um, his ancestors included a set designer for Stravinsky, an imperial Russian architect, and a chef who left France during the revolution and became chef to the Russian emperor. His father worked for the German embassy and was a spy for MI5 before and during World War II. That is not relevant. I just thought it was super interesting. As an actor, early in his career in 1939, he appeared in White Cargo at the Aylesbury Rep, where he performed in a different accent every night. That will become relevant. That's from Wikipedia. I don't know how big his part was, how many lines he had, how many nights it played for. I, I just, what? Why he wasn't fired. <laughs> how many nights it took before he got fired. I just, I have a lot of questions. Wikipedia editors for Peter Ustinov's page, Please give us more information. <laughs> he served in the British Army in World War II, during which time he made a war movie called The Way Ahead with David Niven and several propaganda films, including one in which he had to speak several languages, including Latin. Again, I have questions. Why were they making propaganda films in Latin? I don't understand. After the war, he wrote several successful plays and continued acting on stage and screen and radio and directed and even designed operas. Between 1952 and 1955, he starred with Peter Jones in the BBC radio comedy In All Directions. He won two Oscars, both for Best Supporting Actor for his roles in Spartacus in 1960, which I think needs no explanation, and Topkapi in 1964, which I think needs some explanation. That was a Technicolor heist film set in Turkey. If you have a heist, make sure it's Technicolor. I mean, <laughs> I try to make all my heist Technicolor. Yeah. He won a Golden Globe, three Emmys, a Grammy, and was nominated for two Tonys. So no EGOT, but close. What's the ego? Oh, man. <laughs> oh, oh. Uh, we'll get there. His career took a turn in the 70s, and I mean no shade by that, um, but it is probably the most relevant to our interests. In 1973, he played Prince John in the Disney animated Robin Hood. Um, did anyone else have this on record? Not the record. I watched the movie many times. Yeah. We've talked about the Muppet Show records a lot on this podcast, and um, this was uh, pre-VHS in my household. And I definitely had an LP of like the songs and big chunks of the dialogue from this movie. Why this movie and not any other Disney movie, I do not know. Um, I, yeah, but it also means that like Peter Ustinov's voice is like deep in my child brain. <laughs> in 
June of 1976, so just before um, taping this Muppet Show episode, uh, Logan's Run came out. If you like 70s sci-fi, I highly recommend Logan's Run. I just recently watched it because it showed up on my HBO Max, like, leaving soon screen. So I don't know where it is, but I'm sure it's somewhere because everything just bounces from streaming service to streaming service. I'm going to spoil a 45-year-old movie. So, like, everybody in Logan's Run lives in this, like, place that they can't leave and and no one lives past 35 and Logan escapes and outside in the normal post-apocalyptic world, they meet this very old man played by Peter Ustinov and he is surrounded by cats and Logan and his companion have never seen someone this old or a cat. And Peter Ustinov proceeds to recite from T.S. Eliot's cats, whatever that's, whatever it's actually called. Old Possum's book of practical cats. I knew Christy would have that. (laughs) And it is, insane but also like in 1976 there was no musical of cats so it must have been even more insane because you wouldn't necessarily just know what that was the way we all now know what that is because we all know cats the musical i'll put a clip in the show notes but also just watch logan's run it's it's really the design is really cool and you should watch it anyway from 1978 to 1988 he played agatha christie's detective hercule in six movies including death on the nile He was a fixture on television talk shows and lecture circuits for much of his career. An intellectual and diplomat, he held various academic posts and served as a goodwill ambassador for UNICEF and president of the World Federalist Movement, which I am not going to try to explain, but you can Wikipedia it. Oh, speaking of ego, his autobiography, Dear Me, published in 1977, was well-received and had him describe his childhood while being interrogated by his own ego with forays into philosophy, theater, fame, and self-realization. Sure. Okay. If you can get to self-realization, yeah, good for you. And he had a brief cameo in The Great Muppet Caper. Which was a lot funnier than anything that happened in this episode. He was on screen for like under a minute, and it was delightful. Yep. And he worked pretty steadily until his death in 2004. And just worth noting that like Charles Aznavour, he did his own French dub of his... Muppet Show episode. Le Muppet Show, as it was Indeed. Meant. <laughs> <laughs> We've kind of given it away, but Christy, what did you think of this episode? Woof. Um, so yeah, this episode is really frustrating and almost by design. I I found the Peter Ustinov elements of it really one note and unengaging. The elements that made him successful as an actor, and especially as a voice actor, like, you know, he, he was in Robin Hood, don't gel stylistically with the Muppets at all. Uh, you know, he's reduced to kind of a voices and accent machine. And there's also a lot of tell don't show where the, you know, we're told by the Muppets what a great actor he is. And then he comes out and does this sort of like subpar shtick. And it's like, eh. And I mean, honestly, I was so checked out the first couple of times I watched this that I didn't realize that the backstage plot was an entire arc to set up the final moment of the show, which, you know, as a writer, I appreciate as a gamble, but it, it once once it really becomes clear, then it's like, oh, what a downer of an episode. <laughs> I mean, and it, it leaves me with a lot of questions also about like Muppet Show Kermit versus Kermit at large, but we'll, we'll get into it. But whew, yeah, this one is a, a tough set. Michal, how about you? Yeah, same. Um, The backstage plot is just one Muppet after the next telling Kermit how much they freaking adore Peter Ustinov. And I I know that he has a list of credits and awards that's a mile long. And I know 
what it's a setup for, for Kermit at the end. And I, I should maybe even feel grateful that they're showing us a new side of Kermit that's maybe a flawed side of Kermit that has nothing to do with abusing Miss Piggy. But it's weird. It doesn't quite feel like Kermit. There's a Statler and Waldorf joke um, about music soothing the savage beast and then they get attacked by animal that's not quite animal either because he doesn't just attack Statler and Waldorf. That's not his thing. And and Peter Ustinov himself also just feels very stiff and out of place. There's a moment where Kermit is introducing him to the audience and he's just clutching his blazer like he's kind of afraid that Muppets are going to try to tear him apart. And the way he seems kind of pleasantly surprised that he's on the Muppet show, they say, oh, you're going to be a Muppet in the next sketch. And he goes, oh, extraordinary, which makes it, it, it sounds like he's about to be revealed as a villain who actually hates Muppets and he's going to turn them into coats or something. There, I and I, I don't want to speak against the first season of the Muppet Show because there are so many early episodes that I really love, and there is a lot to be said for some of the puppet acting in this episode and scenes between the Muppet characters. But as a whole episode, it kind of just feels like this weird facsimile of an episode of the Muppet Show that isn't quite the Muppet Show. You're both right. (laughs) <laughs> I liked this a lot better than you both did. I mean, we've been talking about this a little bit off mic. And I, f- I think it's really interesting to have a guest who neither sings nor dances nor is a sketch comic. And I know wait, this is the first time that's happened, really, I think. Am I wrong about that? Um, it sounds right, and, even though he's a Renaissance man. Right? <laughs> um, and so he like he tries to do sketches and it doesn't really work. Um, I think it's the most similar to the Harvey Corman episode in its lopsidedness, but they're very different performers. And so like everything that you both said is true, but it kind of worked for me. And I think part of it is it just felt very seventies to me. Like Peter Ustinov sort of reminds me a little bit of my father, which is weird. And a little bit of a, of a British actor who is much younger than him, but who I, I worked with and knew very well. And I just, I suspect it worked a lot better at the time, which is not to say that it holds up now, but I think especially given sort of like who he was in the culture, it this probably f- worked a little better. And, and we'll get into it more when we talk about some of the shtick that he does and how of its time it, it felt. But um, yeah, I didn't, I didn't hate it. I certainly didn't love it. Yeah, I wondered if the uh, 70s context for Peter Yusinov would have aided my enjoyment because I, I don't really have much context for him beyond Robin Hood. So... I was trying to think of a contemporary analog and I was like, I mean, would it be like, gosh, I don't know. Benedict Cumberbatch. (laughs) Maybe. Yeah. It's even, even less than him specifically. It's like the writing in general, like we'll, we'll talk about it when we get into the, into Shoffman canon, but there's, uh, it just, everything felt so 1976 to me in a way that I don't always feel when we're, when we're talking about this stuff. So with that, let's get into it. So in spite of having a negative triple threat as a guest star, uh, (laughs) we do have quite a bit of music uh, this episode. So our friend uh, Chekhov's balloon guy has uh, returned this time as a conductor.
So yeah, without the visual, that's really bizarre. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it sounds very cartoonish. There, there's at least one GIF in the show notes if you if you're not watching along. Yeah, so our our friend the balloon guy uh, is conducting a, an orchestra of balloons that pop on cue and pop and or deflate on cue, I should say. He's conducting the balloon orchestra to a piece that is commonly referred to as pizzicato. Uh, that is actually a passage from a ballet called Sylvia. Uh, by the composer Leo Delib. It's, it's actually known as the Divertissement Pizzicati from Act Three. Pizzicato is actually a, a musical direction. And uh, per Miriam Webster, it's a note or passage played by plucking strings. So, like, the effect is sort of short, sharp notes. Wikipedia even says the prelude to the first act and the Pizzicati and the third are the significantly more famous sections of this already notable score. Well, a a big fan wrote this apparently. The latter more famous is a well-known example of Pizzicato style. This section is traditionally played in a halting, hesitant style that appears to have been no part of Delib's conception. So basically this is a piece of classical music that has appeared in a lot of cartoons and, uh, comic uh, film situations. It was famously played by Chico Marx with an orchestra in the movie Monkey Business. And it becomes a sort of like dueling uh, pianist and orchestra thing where Chico's playing faster. And then he says, hi, I beat you that time. (laughs) Um, We'll we'll find a clip and put it in the show notes. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, this is one of those classic cartoon bits. Uh, But I I find it funny that uh, the the way that it's commonly played now is not actually how it's meant to be played in the ballet. And of course the whole joke here is um, it's a, it's a performance. It's a a guest performance by uh, evening at the pops. Yes. (laughs) Which premiered on PBS in 1970. And this is just the Uh wind section. Right. And they are balloons and they pop. That's the whole joke. But you know, also like the seventies of it all, a mass audience joke about a classical music program on PBS. Can you imagine? <laughs> Christy, how's his conducting? I was curious how realistic that is. I, you know, I was so focused on the balloons of it all that I wasn't paying attention, but he definitely had human hands. So yes, I mean, it's, um, it's, and it's Jim Henson. It is, uh, it is Jim Henson's hands and they are both his hands because he doesn't need to control anything else. Yeah. They, they weren't distracting. I, I will say that much. Do we know how they pop the balloons? Muppet Morsels didn't say, and I didn't look at Wikipedia. Yep. I forgot to look it up. I was curious while I watched, and then uh, nothing happened. All I know is is they must have figured out how to do that one day and thought it was the funniest thing ever. Well, there's a, there's a picture of it from 1967, so they've been doing it for a while. Yeah. Hmm. It's a solid joke. Our UK spot this episode goes to some yeehaw adjacent territory. Play, play for me A sad melody So sad that it makes everybody cry A real hurting song About a love that's gone wrong Because I don't want to cry Oh, Hey, won't you play? Another somebody done somebody wrong song. And let me feel at home while I miss my baby. While I miss my baby. Up a key. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
I love the upper key. Yeah, every so time Rolf yells modulate or upper key, it's it's my favorite thing. <laughs> so this is uh, hey, won't you play another somebody done somebody wrong song? And uh, if you're thinking it, yes, it is the longest title to ever go to number one. Uh, it was a, a hit for B.J. Thomas in 1975. I think at this point, this is the newest song that has appeared, it, it, at least in our timeline uh, so far. It was written by uh, Larry Butler and Chips Moman, who were um, big country Nashville producer guys. Larry Butler was a session musician early in his career. He played piano on several big country hits like Conway Twitty's Hello Darling and Bobby Goldsboro's Honey, and uh, went on to be the only Nashville producer to, to win a Producer of the Year Grammy. And his most famous partnership was actually with Kenny Rogers. He produced all of his biggest albums. And Chip's Moment was also primarily a, a producer. He produced Elvis's Suspicious Finds, which is his last number one hit. And he was responsible for assembling the band The Box Tops that had the one hit wonder, The Letter in the 60s. And he co-wrote Aretha Franklin's Do Right Woman, Do Right Man. And yeah, uh, Wikipedia uh, tells us that uh, it... Uh, Entered the charts at number 99 in February of 1975, and it hit number one on April 26th of 1975. And including the parenthetical part, the title is the longest of any song to top the Hot 100 chart. And it won the 1976 Grammy for Best Country Song. And it was B.J. Thomas's second number one hit. His first one was Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head. And he had pivoted towards country mid-career. And uh, then after this point, he pivoted again towards religious music. But he did find time to sing the theme from Growing Pains. <laughs> but I, I, I found a, a, an assessment of this song uh, in a piece on Stereo Gum by Tom Brand that just I thought was very funny. He said, this is not a complicated song and it doesn't have all the sharp and finely observed storytelling touches of the best country music. There's a bit of mid-70s dinkiness to it. The ukulele sounding guitar strum, the weirdly jaunty trumpet that sometimes pops up, but the arrangement mostly nails the Nashville countrypolitan sound with its welled up strings and its consoling pedal steel murmurs and Thomas sells it all, his tough baritone keeping things conversational but still sounding wounded. Uh, hey, won't you play another somebody done somebody wrong song which has one of the longest ever titles for number one hit isn't a monumental work but it'll do the trick <laughs> and uh i would also like to note that alvin and chipmunks covered this on their seminal 1981 masterwork <laughs> urban chipmunks <laughs> i can't um. it'll do the trick it'll do the trick uh <laughs> Uh, yeah, so I have some questions about the setup of this song. So it's primarily uh, Piggy and Ralph and Fozzie singing with uh, some a assistance from Cle Cleveland. Cleveland and Scooter and Janice are real snuggly for reasons unknown. Uh, yeah, were you trying to figure out which puppeteer was where? Because yes, there are two characters voiced by the same puppeteer in the same scene. We actually get two Frank Oz's. Finally. So they figured out that they needed Frank Oz as Piggy to sing this and probably to puppeteer it from what I can tell, but they didn't need Frank Oz to perform Piggy in at the dance later. Right. Cause I, I think we got a Richard right. Hunt Piggy later. But and just in terms of like who's, who's puppeteering who they, it could be anyone anywhere because right. The, the voices don't necessarily match the, 
the puppeteers in this. Mm -hmm. And the DVD pop-ups, you know, actually made a point of saying that this is really unusual for season one. They they really did not start doing this until season two. This is an oddity and we should not get used to it. Um, there'll be more Richard Hunt piggies to come. And speaking of, of Piggy, I find her weeping for Kermit at the end really strange. <laughs> it's really strange. I mean, is, has he done her wrong? Is yeah. that the implication? I guess so. Well, she, she says she misses him. Yeah, but we're... The lyrics are, well, I miss my baby, right? And then she says, I miss Kermit so much. But he's just off stage, probably. I got a feeling from the, you know, because I keep harping on, uh, you know, George and whoever being in these scenes. This felt like a like a bar sing-along to me. Yeah. Even though it's not, it's clearly on stage, right? They're clearly performing. Like, there's a backdrop. I, I But there's just the vibe of it just felt like a group of friends Oh yeah, Possibly. it's very Marie's Crisis. Right, like, very, like drunkenly singing yeah. around a piano. It's very like slings and arrows, right? Like the show's over. They've gone to the bar next door, and so I, I didn't like, I didn't mind George being there, and I didn't mind like Scooter and Janice hanging all over each other. You know, he's he's her gay friend, and they're yeah, they've, they've had, both a, had a couple drinks. I don't know. It just like I didn't question anything in this number, even though you're totally right to it. Makes no sense at all. I'm usually the weird parent. Yep. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it was just the intensity of, of the weeping and the I miss Kermit. I'm just like, he's, he's off stage. <laughs> it's right over there. <laughs> I, I don't think he actually went to the swamp, but oh, okay. Speaking of weird pedants, uh, we do get a brand new shot of the audience Oof. following this number. Oh, God. It is the same audience oh, with the same dead Muppets who are not being performed by anyone. And... You can tell. Yeah, it just lingers on them a little longer, so you can notice that there's nobody inside that puppet. It's a different camera angle, and it's—I mean, you know—just like because like we're nerds oh. about this, like it's actually fascinating. Yeah, how weird and creepy they look because they shouldn't, right? Like, I feel like they did it to dare people to pay attention. <laughs> I mean, I don't because it was 1976, and nobody was making gifs or pausing or watching it in high def. I, I've, I mean, how many times have I watched the Muppet Show? I've never noticed until we started this podcast. But it's, mm-hmm. it just, I am fascinated by the fact that like these, these things that we know are inanimate, but they look alive to us, can so easily look creepy if they're not if they're not operated in the right way it's i i just think it's really interesting and there will definitely be a gif in the show notes yeah they look alive because muppet performers are talented right. puppeteers and they are making they're they're wiggling dolls in such a way <laughs> that it makes the dolls believable but when you just prop them up against a, a bunch of seats in a theater so they're a little slumped over <laughs> It's not a good look. And they just chose another angle for that same shot of all the slumped over Muppets. And it's a little sad. Oh, wow. Yeah, it it asks more questions than it answers. So we get a repeat song. Do do that. Who do that. You do so well. Will you do something to me that nobody else could Nobody else could. Nobody else could. Nobody else could. Oh, finally, I thought you'd never get me back to myself again. Nobody else could. Adore. 
say we're only 12 episodes in, but we've already run out of songs. (laughs) There are only 12 songs and we have sung all of them. So yeah, so uh, this is You Do Something (laughs) to Me, which was previously a Wayne and Wanda bit. And we definitely hear more of it this time. Um, Yeah, we won't go too far into it. Again, it's a Cole Porter song from a show called 50 Million Frenchmen. And in this bit, Muppet named Zvengali is... uh, doing weird magic on his assistant who's kind of a round faced pink cute sesame looking to me Muppet uh, and uh, transforming her into various strange guises. And like the, the joke is you think he's doing something terrible to her, but actually he's already done something terrible to her. She's supposed to look just like him and he's undoing what he did wrong. Yeah. And apparently this is Svengali's second appearance. He was one of the motley crew of uh, monsters and villains in Comedy Tonight in the Joel Grey episode, but I don't remember him. But yeah, he looks a little like Father Guido Sarducci to me. Yeah. I love when I look something up on the wiki and it's like, <laughs> this number performed by the Svengali. And I'm like, uh, oh, is that a thing I'm supposed to know? Like, who? What? I mean, I do remember his look. It's it's right for the way that they did yeah, comedy tonight. Yeah, and he has that accent. I'm, I'm, I remember him being in there, but I just didn't know he had a name or a title, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. Apparently he does. And apparently his assistant also has a name, which is Svengali's assistant. <laughs> yeah, the Svengali's assistant, who is performed here both by Aaron Oscar and Cynthia Adler, because she has two different voices, and she has many different looks about her as uh, she's being transformed throughout the song. She's a mermaid and a potted plant and a number of other things. And all of them collectively, uh, unless you count the hat rack, which maybe counts as a Muppet because it has its own wiki page. (laughs) But uh, all of those collectively are my favorite Muppet of the week. And I guess that was the hat rack. It's very cute. And it's, it's a good bit, like just that sort of Muppet camera trickery right it's you know every every when you heard in the clip every every zap and puff of smoke it's a new thing and it's Mm -hmm. it's just really nicely edited it it feels really seamless yeah so i i know uh we wanted to talk a bit about aaron oscar this episode we got a really lovely email from a a listener named uh cara terrell i hope i'm pronouncing that correctly um asking us to talk about aaron oscar which we we probably should have done sooner and i'm sure we would have gotten around to eventually but um thank you for uh thank you for requesting it and thank you for listening yeah we have been uh enjoying aaron oscar's performances especially as hilda and we'll we'll talk more about hilda later but aaron oscar was the only regular female performer uh, in the first season of The Muppet Show. We have other people cycling in and out, uh, like Cynthia Adler, who also performs this uh, assistant Muppet. We've we've sort of lamented the lack of female core Muppet performers. Um, we've also mentioned uh, some characters who are going to go away after the first season. Aaron Oscar was a core Muppet performer, but only for the first season, uh, which is why some of these characters will not return. She continued working as an actor and puppeteer after leaving the Muppets. She toured with the National Shakespeare Company. In 1989, Oscar fought for more vocal participation by puppeteers in the acting unions, founding the SAG after a puppeteer's caucus and serving as its first chairwoman. In 1991, she was also awarded the Joseph C. Riley Award by SAG for outstanding service to the union. She often played opposite actor William Bogert, Hope I'm pronouncing that correctly too. And for that matter, I hope I'm pronouncing Oscar correctly. It's spelled O Z K E R. 
And when she returned to the States in 1977 on a break from her Muppet work, Bogart and Oscar married. Um, sadly, Erin died of cancer in 1993 at the age of 44. As you mentioned, she died tragically young. And I, there was the sweetest damned obituary that her, her husband, the actor William Bogart, had written about her. And there were a couple of just really adorable bits from it that I wanted to read. Um, he he wrote, she wasn't the smartest girl I've ever known or the prettiest or the best dancer, but she was smart and pretty and a good dancer and funny and kind and a lot of other good things. And she picked me and I couldn't believe my luck. And I still felt that way. Even after I met one of her two former boyfriends who believed that they were in fact the risen Christ, I'm not making this up. (laughs) And there was another bit. She hated to say that she hated a play or a movie or a restaurant. She would smile a strained smile and say, I found it insufficiently arresting. So that's Aaron Oscar. It's also worth mentioning uh, that she was Turkish American. It is. I don't know what her um, Hilda accent is based on exactly. I I know that we will mention Hilda more later in this episode and that we love the, the squishy face that she makes. But yeah, I don't know where the accent came from. Half of the old costume ladies that I've encountered in my life have had that accent. (laughs) Uh, Her Shakespeare work included uh, roles such as Hero, Much Do About Nothing, and Ophelia in Hamlet. So, you know, in in her her human acting life, she was an ingenue, and then she was playing Hilda, uh, which I sort of love. Um, But yeah, um, Muppet-wise, she she played Hilda and Wanda. She was an early Janice. Um, so Janice, you know, does stick around. Um, in Emanato's Jug Band Christmas, she played Gretchen Fox, uh, Old Lady Possum, and Hetty Muskrat. Um, so she made a pretty big um, impression on the Muppets, even though she did not work with them for very long. Uh, and as I am really uh, becoming a huge Hilda fan, uh, I am particularly sad that she is not going to stick around for uh, future seasons. Yeah, I'll ask Hilda. All right. Speaking of Wanda... The falling leaves drift by my... <laughs> yep. That's it. That's it. <laughs> is that is that silence the sound yep. of leaves That's falling? That's a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to talk about it longer than that clip was. Yeah. Autumn Leaves uh, is a jazz standard par excellence. Uh, It's originally uh, a French song by uh, Joseph Cosma. I hope I'm saying that right. I'm probably not. And Jacques Prévert. And later uh, received English lyrics by Johnny Mercer. And a piano instrumental version by Roger Williams was the first piano instrumental to hit number one on the Billboard charts in 1955. Joseph Cosma was a native of Hungary uh, who was uh, introduced to Jacques Prévert in Paris and they, is most famous for actually scoring uh, the films of Jean Renoir, including Le Grand Illusion, Le Bête Humaine, The Human Beast, and uh, The Rules of the Game. And uh, Jacques Prévert was actually primarily a poet and a screenwriter. He's a very, very well-known poet in the French-speaking world. And uh, his poems are studied uh, by French students. And his best-regarded films formed part of the poetic realist movement and included Les Enfants du Paradis. And Johnny Mercer is one of the uh, most famous Tin Pan Alley songwriters of all time. Best known as a lyricist, was also a composer. And his songs uh, included 
the lyrics to Moon River, uh, Days of Wine and Roses, and Hooray for Hollywood. You know, he wrote the lyrics to more than 1,500 songs, uh, including uh, stuff for movies, for Broadway shows. And uh, he received 19 Oscar nominations and won four of them for uh, Best Original Song. And according to Wikipedia, uh, Autumn Leaves was deemed by a jazz historian named Philippe Baudouin the most important non-American standard. And uh, he said that it has been recorded about 1,400 times by mainstream and modern jazz musicians alone and is the eighth most recorded tune by jazz men. I would add jazz women and jazz people uh, to that tally. Uh, so, yeah, the uh, it's also uh, used often to teach the circle of fifths progression to jazz musicians. So it's uh, a good sort of building blocks if you're learning how to play jazz. It's a really good song that I'm a fan of. And lastly, we get a Muppet classic. It's not easy being green. Seems you blend in with so many other ordinary things. And people tend to pass you over because you're not standing out like flashy sparkles in the water or stars in the sky. But green's the color of spring. And green can be cool and friendly-like. Just always been struck by the phrasing cool and friendly like <laughs> i'm from kentucky that just sounds normal to me oh fair <laughs> so uh this is uh, yet another song credited to uh joe Raposo uh, from 1970 although i found uh some controversy dun, 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 dun. Uh, muppet wiki says via the book street gang that uh the song, even though it's credited to Joe Raposo, John Stone, who was one of the producers and the, the primary director of Sesame Street, uh, was the one who asked Joe Raposo to write it and basically kind of give him like a beat by beat, you know, like the what the what Street Gang calls the curriculum goal for the song. And he made lyric suggestions and um, was in the room as it was mapped out. And later, John Stone's family were, were like, yeah, he probably should have gotten a songwriting credit on that. And he didn't. And apparently uh, his failure to call Joe Raposo out for claiming full credit uh, <laughs> was one of the things that ruined his marriage. <laughs> Awkward. Um, <laughs> yeah apparently um yeah well, and being this w- was kermit's signature song at this point he had done it a whole bunch of times on tv he'd done it on sesame street twice uh the second time with uh lena horn uh, he'd done it on the tonight show uh he'd done it on evening at pops <laughs> uh speaking of relevant uh on th- uh, the julie andrews special julie on sesame street that we'd mentioned previously and also on a really delightful episode of the syndicated 70s version of What's My Line. And we'll, we'll link to that in the show notes. Jim Henson is the one of the mystery guests on the episode, and it's just uh, wonderful. And it had been recorded by several major artists before this, including noted Joe Raposo stan Frank Sinatra, <laughs> as well as Thurl Ravenscroft, Lena Horne herself, Ray Charles, Van Morrison, Diana Ross, a whole long list of people. 
And I would just like to point out that this is in the pantheon of great songs that don't rhyme. Hmm. Have you ever noticed that? I never noticed that. And I usually notice that. Never thought about it. Yeah. There is exactly one rhyme in the, the song. I, uh, and, and I think it's a, an effectively deployed rhyme. Being Green is a, an A-A-B-A song. And um, A-A-B-A structure, I'm putting on my songwriter hat here for a second, Love is usually, usually used uh, to show uh, a change of attitude or a uh, a, a change of mood. Um, and so, you know, the, the A sections, you basically have to have three sections that are st- structured exactly the same. And then the, the, the B section, which comes third, usually is some sort of turn so that then when you return to the original idea, something's changed. And so the, the B section ends with tall, like a tree. And uh, then the last A ends with what I want to be. So you, ha- you have that like tiny resonant rhyme. Um, hmm. when Kermit's like, oh, okay, yeah, I, I'm, I'm okay with this. As much as I, I, I think it's a great song, it's also, I think, a really depressing song. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, and and I, I, I blame the music more than the the sentiment. It's very seventies. It's it's extremely seventies. It reminds me a lot of Gilbert O'Sullivan's "Alone Again Naturally." Mm-hmm. Like it lives in that same sort of like major seven. Uh, <laughs> I'm really depressed. Groove. <laughs> yeah, like I'm probably going to be okay, but I'm still kind of yeah. depressed. Well, and it feels like it wants. I mean, I'm not a songwriter, but I listen to a lot of musical theater. It feels like because his mood does change during the song, it feels like it it needs a shift. Either, you know, like a, like a key change or an orchestration or something to change that doesn't actually happen, even though the lyrics change, it stays musically the same. I mean, the performance changes it a little bit. Yeah, yeah totally. It's tricky. Yeah. It is. And it does that trick that you said. By the end of it, you do believe that he's shifted the way that he thinks about himself. Yeah. And it is a lovely bit of puppetry. I mean, at least in this version, but I think it's pretty consistent that, right, that the, like we were talking earlier about the the eyes on the puppets in the audience, right? I mean, you... There is a whole performance happening in Kermit, and it's it's very it's very nice to watch. Did it feel like they s- switched puppets in the middle, or did they just change the shot and the lighting? I think they do because uh, we see him sitting down, so it becomes a Kermit with legs, which I don't think Kermit mm-hmm. always has. So I, I think it is two different Kermits. It, I could be wrong. Kermit's in what what I've now just started to think of as the field of angst. <laughs> <laughs> It's just like, you know, the the second that you see lush greenery and flowers, that the existential gut punch is coming. Ready! Three, two, one, fire! It is shot out of a cannon time. Before we get to some of the canonical bits from this episode, first, let's just give a quick note. This is the first episode that does not feature a talk spot thus far, although uh, judging from some of the photos that were taken on set, there um, was one filmed, but it was cut from the oh, episode. No. Now I wonder what happened there. <laughs> so sad. <laughs> uh, we're also, um, we're now starting to track the evolution of Kermit's yay. And uh, although David is not here, he he put this in our Slack as a candidate. Let's let's see how we feel about it. It's the Muppet Show with our special guest star, Mr. Peter Ustinoff. <laughs> 
Thank you. Uh, Thank uh, you. How about this guy? It feels like more of a <laughs> to me, but you know. How did he get in here? Peter, you we'll, we'll We'll continue our investigation. <laughs> That's more about I'm being yanked backwards against my will. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and then are, are we going to argue that Peter Ustinov gives a proto-yay himself in his impression of I mean, Kermit at the end? I mean, it's almost more of, I didn't clip it, but it's almost more of one than than this was. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, before we get to Peter Yusinov's impressions, uh, let's talk about the backstage plot. As much as the storyline itself is um, pretty much uh, passable, it's we can use it. Uh, there is some very sweet and very detailed puppet acting happening. Um, so what's happening is that character after character who used to think of Kermit as compelling or their hero or their romantic interest have suddenly turned their hero worship to guest star Peter Ustinov. Um, Fozzie and Scooter each have a, a lovely moment with Kermit, but let's listen to Piggy and Hilda's clips. Oh, Piggy, I, I've told you, I don't have any time in my life for any emotional involvement right now. No, I'm talking about Peter Ustinov. <laughs> oh. Oh. He is a renaissance man. Oh, well, I am a leg man. <laughs> Whoops, it's time now to introduce your new heartthrob. Josie, my name is Frog. <laughs> I just like hearing Kermit say, I am a leg man, because it's funny, but it also makes no sense at all in this context. Yeah, and I love Piggy's line reading. <laughs> no. <laughs> It's very funny. And I'm talking about Peter Yusinov. And just the, the turning of the piggy and Kermit really thing like on its it. head is is very good, especially given what a dick. Well, what a dick Kermit has been and also like really how inappropriate piggy has been. I don't know. I love that. I love it very much. Yeah, there is something to be said for this storyline where Kermit has been very busy being a bad producer and not having time for anybody. And now nobody has time for him. And he's kind of getting a taste of his own medicine. So appreciative, mm. so observant. The frog observed, the frog appreciates. I had just gone into giving his costume, yeah. and he looked at me and he said, Hilda, you have the most exquisite hem stitch. Is that so? Imagine a big star like that noticing an old costume lady like me. Now, Hilda, you know, I have many times noted that your craftsmanship as a seamstress is superb. It is, in fact, flawless, and you are a wonder. Oh, what does a frog know? <laughs> <laughs> and she makes a little squishy face. I, I continue to find Hilda the most realistic Muppet theater employee. Like, mm -hmm. I love her, and I feel like no one else appreciates her. And this actually gets at what I what I actually like about Peter Ustinov too. I mentioned up top that I in my in my earlier career days worked with a British actor um, quite a lot who was about twenty years younger than Peter Ustinov, but th th it was a similar vibe. And like this is the sort of thing he would do because he knew it worked. He was probably lying, right? But like he knew, like he would mm -hmm. he would find the wardrobe mistress and he would compliment something very specific. Um, like her, you know, her hem stitch, um, and it would work. And like, I literally, I used him as a job reference for the job I have now. And my, 
when I got the job, my boss was like, he is so charming. And I was like, yeah, I know. That's why I used him as a reference. And it worked. <laughs> and I think that's like, that's part of what works for me about Peter Ustinov, even when the actual sketches don't, is that that is coming through. Um, that's also sort of what doesn't work, is that he's like, I'm great at accents. No, you're maybe not. But, you know, <laughs> it's all part of a piece. This all raises a giant question for me. And this may be the part of me that went to grad school talking, but what does Kermit want? Great question. <laughs> it's a valid question. And maybe, who knows, maybe this is the point at which Kermit starts to ask what does Kermit want. But he hasn't really given any indication that he wants to be a star. You know, up until now, we've only sort of seen him as the beleaguered host slash producer slash sometimes stage manager, sometimes animal wrangler, <laughs> fill in the blank. But and and he's performed for sure, but there's not really this sense that he really wants to be the center of attention so much as he just wants everything to go okay. And so on one hand, if, if the th thing that they're going for is, you know, subtly, you know, sowing the seeds of Kermit realizing like, oh, no, I want something more than being taken for granted by everyone around me, then great. But that's real subtle in the midst of a lot of really not subtle stuff, you know? So are you saying that canonically, this is uh, when Kermit first realizes that he wants to get out of the swamp and get out of Cleveland and sing and dance and make people happy and sign a rich and famous contract? Quite possibly. I mean, that even posits a, a version of things in which the Muppet movie is just a, one of Kermit's daydreams during this <laughs> phase of his life. Yeah. Mm. Which I, know, I don't almost, hate. It's all a fever dream. It almost does. It almost feels like <laughs> sort of good continuity to me because he he's sort of annoyed by everyone, you know, needing him all the time in earlier episodes. Right. And like particularly Piggy and Scooter and Fozzie, actually all of whom have scenes here with him. Right. You know, he's like, why, you know, can't you just leave me alone and solve this on your own? But then the second they don't need him, right. His ego kicks in and he's like, wait, don't you need me? That actually feels very real to me. Sure. It feels like a real person, but if you were writing him as a character, then you need to answer what is Well, right, I mean, I think part of what he wants is to be a leader and to be respected. Right, he gets no respect, right? Maybe that's what it is. He wants to be respected. Yeah, I don't know. Let's play the scooter clip, because... Yeah, what I would really a frog like know? Scene. Last week, I was your favorite. Well, we grow, Kermit. We progress. <laughs> I just saw him in that last sketch. I was on the floor. That's a lousy place to watch a sketch from. <laughs> I meant from laughter. You see, when I grow up, I want to be just like him. Uh, last week you wanted to be just like me. I was wrong. <laughs> I'm in my formative years. Oh, if you had a choice, well, which would you choose? Would you like to grow up and be an international star? Or would you like to grow up and be a frog? Uh, I'd turn green with envy. If I weren't already green. Okay, so that's what leads into being green. That's not what that song is about. No. I also was thinking about this within the sort of accepted subtext of being green in the 70s, which was a, a racial subtext. Right. And 
also thinking about it vis-a-vis I'm in love with a big blue frog, which is also supposed to be <laughs> dealing yikes, with, yikes, with yikes, the same yikes, thing. Yikes. And it's terrible. Gosh. It's terrible. It's terrible. Uh, so th- this is also interesting if you view it through that lens, like view it through like a microaggressions lens. Oh, but gosh. yeah, but it's, it's tricky. It's tricky. Yeah. Um, it was weird. It's weird. It just felt to me like they didn't know how to end this runner. And they were like, well, we've got being green. Oh, I was assuming that they needed to play being green at some point in the first season and that they needed to write a whole episode oh, leading sure. up to that it. That also makes sense. Like I thought that that's where this. Oh yeah, I definitely from. felt like. Th- yeah, that that's probably more. That probably makes. More they sense built backwards, but. Yeah. Yeah, because nothing Peter Ustinov does on stage. <laughs> right. Writes into gosh that Peter that Ustinov. Too. That too. What a gem. So Kermit is having uh, all of these moments of reckoning backstage, and then does he walk onto the stage to sing "Being Green"? So it would seem. Do you think? Yeah. He leaves the desk. Yeah. Camera camera right so yes it is implied that that's what's happening yeah even though it's part of the backstage plot right it's not the theater of his mind right and the and the the what did you call it the forest of despair (laughs) (laughs) i called it the field of angst but the forest of despair works well yours is better and the field of angst is is all set up and ready to go for him yeah is next door (laughs) to the forest of despair and two two doors down from the bottom of eternal stench it's a whole (laughs) It's a whole place you don't want to go. Um, there is a moment when Scooter is looking up at the dressing room and says he want, just wants to be just like Peter Ustinov. When you can see the back of his head and the back of his glasses, and you can see his little eyeballs painted onto his glasses, which is just kind of a weird, mind-boggling thing to look at. It's true. Also, the DVD pointed out uh, during the Muppet Lab sketch, which we'll get to in a minute, that um, Bunsen Honeydew is one of the few Muppets without eyes, which is a thing I can now not unsee. Yeah. He has glasses, but no eyes. Sometimes that's how it works when you're a Muppet. Moving right along, here's a, a moment that is not canon. I don't know if we've done this before, but Kermit introduces Peter Ustinov to the audience as though he's like a, a show pony. Like, hey, everybody, it's time to meet our guest star. He's done it a couple of times, but without the uh, the unfortunate dad joke at the end. He is a man for all seasons, an actor, a director, a writer, plus being a great raconteur. Uh, that's, that's French for tennis player, I think. <laughs> I'm here for that joke. Yeah, I'm not mad about it. So there we've got that introduction just so that Peter Ustinov can look extra awkward and out of place before... Kermit tells him, you are about to depict a Muppet. And so here we are with our second outing with Muppet Labs. And our first uh, Muppet Labs uh, was that all-purpose tenderizer bit, which led us to some foul places. Wah, wah. <laughs> let's, not, okay. let's not beat that joke to death. Indeed. <laughs> All right, let's see if uh, this Muppet Labs gets any better. So it is with incalculable pride that I give you the new robot politician. (laughs) Yes, this electronic politician will end corruption in government forever. For instance, the robot politician will make an excellent British Prime Minister. Watch. Although the skies are dark. 
just keeps yeah, going. Yeah, nope. It's cringe all the way down. And, I mean, some of his impressions are pretty okay. His Nixon's pretty good. His Nixon's pretty good. Churchill's good. Yeah, and but it does get cringier from there, and a lot of it is very of its time. And for a bunch of my notes on a bunch of his impressions, I just wrote down, oh dear. <laughs> it's just really long. Yeah. He does a lot of impressions before the robot politician goes on the fritz. <laughs> there is a there is a great bit uh, that I think is an accident where um, Ustinov uh, knocks Bunsen's glasses off of his head. And, I mean, they're attached, right? Like, the, the stems are attached to his head, but, right, they go flying backwards. And, like, Bunsen reacts as a real person would with mm-hmm. both hands, which I'm pretty sure are two different people's hands. Like, go to his face and fix the glasses, and it's just such a lovely bit of of improv, and it it makes the puppet feel so real and alive, and I'm pretty positive it was not at all planned, and it is the best thing that happens in the entire sketch. Yeah, that is so adorable, and I've watched this several times, and I was so busy cringing at the impressions that I didn't even notice well, that. There is a GIF in the show notes. You'll be able to watch as many times as you Excellent. want on repeat without, without, any, without any sound. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> What you mean a, a a sketch that drops jokes about the salt agreements of 1972 <laughs> isn't <See>, evergreen? <laughs> I liked that joke because I'm old enough. I to meant get to it. look that up and then to see if uh, it had anything to do with the salt tax. It doesn't. Yes. I'm guessing it doesn't. I didn't look it up. It no, doesn't. It's just strategic, strategic arms limitation talks. There you go. Uh, <laughs> see, and I knew that without oh. looking it up, so I didn't read it. All right, let's talk about it. The dance. Yeah, there were some okay jokes in At the Dance, and Mildred does a really cute take to the camera. I find that most people don't believe what other people tell them. Uh, I don't think that's true. There is a gif of Mildred's response in the show notes. You can use it on Twitter whenever somebody mansplains at you. Yeah, she turns her head all the way around. We also have uh, that ditzy humanoid dance partner lady who dances with Ralph say a line about the punch bowl that gets her punched in the face. Had a revelation about my distaste for these humanoid Muppets. Something about this Muppet in this scene. She looks like a Gelfling. You're not wrong. And as much as I love the Dark Crystal, something about Gelflings in this context creeped me out. And I think that's what, I don't know. Yeah, there's an uncanny valley thing that happens with the Gelflings. I'm I'm with you on that. Shall we talk about post Dickensian economics. Do we have to? Do we have to? <laughs> okay, we have to. <laughs> um, Sam introduces uh, two distinguished professors who are going to tell us about post Dickensian economics. They are not, in fact, distinguished professors. They are Peter Ustinov and Fazi. And uh, doing a, a bit, it's a, a long walk to a mediocre punchline. And in the, the pantheon of Fazi's comedy partners, and we all know that the Snowman in Muppet Family Christmas, a TV special from 1987. If you've talked to me for more than five minutes, you know that this is the pinnacle of human achievement. Um, Fozzie's comedy partner, The Snowman, um, from that special is right up there, and Kermit in The Comedian's a Bear, which we've recently discussed. Um, Those are on one tier in that hierarchy, and then somewhere on some much lower tier is this impression that Peter Ustinov does. And it made me want to declare categorically that Fozzie should always work alone and never have a comedy partner, but uh, see the (laughs) above examples. What he shouldn't have is 
Peter Ustinov doing this kind of passable impression of that one relative that you can't stand and you're pretty sure voted for the previous president and smokes a cigar is masquerading as a comedy partner and giving us uh, this, it's not even a well-delivered punchline, while Fozzie just loses his mind and yells to the audience about how funny this is. That's not the comedy we need. Oh, I mean, at, at this point, I was just like, another accent? Really? That's all he does. That's literally yeah. all he does. The entire episode is like, oh, what about this one? What about this one? And it's just like, cool. Yeah, you, we you, can't end the episode yet. I have another impression. I mean, and, and, yeah. I, mean and I feel like, like British actors in particular really enjoy showing off their accents. It's just like, we get it. You went to Rada. Like, you know, calm down. But <laughs> I, it's just exhausting. It's not, it's not a bit. <laughs> I want to talk about two things in this, one of which has nothing to do with the content. Um, the first is that these characters are introduced as um, Professor Arnold Nud and Frederick Nick. Yusinov's accent, while bad, is distinctly um, American Jewish, and uh, Nudnik is, of course, a Yiddish and Yinglish word. So that's a choice that I want to talk about more when we get to the panel discussion. Um, the second thing is just like a, wow, TV was different when you couldn't see it very well. Um, ah. There is a gigantic piece of gaffer's tape on Peter Ustinov's jacket where the button It's holding should it be. together? It's not, I don't think it's holding it together because at one point he lifts, raises his arm and the, the second button on the jacket lifts up from behind the podium and it's very, very shiny. So I think someone decided that his buttons were too shiny and you can't really see the second one except for this one moment. And they thought, well, you know what? We'll solve that. A big old honking piece of gaff tape. And in 1976, nobody was actually going to notice because the jacket is black and the tape is black. But in 2021, in HD, you can very much see that there is a huge piece of tape on this man's jacket. And because I was so bored by the sketch, I just stared at the tape. <laughs> We've got a Muppet News Flash with another impression it's Dr. Felix Ogelbaum of Copenhagen, and he's come up with a cure for the common cold. And we've got uh, th- this week's 2021 III moment, because his, cur- his cure for the common cold is to stay away from sick people and put a paper bag over your head and hold your breath. And then he sneezes anyway. <sighs> ah, yeah, yeah. He's um, not wrong. But we d- <laughs> he's not wrong. Yeah, stay away from sick people, everybody. Uh, the Muppet Newsman's glasses are now on his face uh, until they're not. <laughs> somehow manages to whip them off of his face and back onto his face again. It's a very impressive maneuver. Uh, according to the DVD, his voice is also changing. I didn't really notice a difference, but I'll take their word for it. Yeah, I didn't pick up on that either. Okay, we've got a panel spot about psychiatry, which is yet another impression, <laughs> you guys. Um, most of the joke is that Peter Ustinov is a very animated German psychiatrist who aspirates all the peas in psychiatry and spits on Kermit while doing so. And we will talk more about Cynthia Adler next week when we talk about her duck character, but she's playing a character here named Cynthia Birdley. And <laughs> I'm just going to note that um, the other day David put in our Slack channel that he was watching The Nanny, and I wondered whether he was inspired to watch The Nanny because of this character. And that's what you need to know about Cynthia Birdley. Oh, you are a practicing psychiatrist, doctor? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. How long you been practicing? Uh, 35 years. Ah, oh, isn't it time you stopped practicing and got on with it? 
Cynthia, please, uh, don't be ridiculous. No, 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 Mr. Brock, that's all right. Misunderstandings about psychiatry are common. Yeah, I did laugh a lot during this sketch. <laughs> Give it some credit. This was a funny bit. It's the the Kermit's so cute when he, he wipes the, the spit. <laughs> I mean, it's <laughs> gross, but it's cute. Um, I, I have noticed this before, but it really came to a head in this episode with... Um, both the the Nudnik bit um, and and this like there is such a New York Jewish vibe to a lot of the Muppet Show. I mean, not all of it. And there's like there's a New York Jewish vibe to a lot of vaudeville, and that's what they're drawing from. Um, but I just think it's interesting, right? Because the show shot in London, and you know Jim Henson is you know at this point has lived in a lot of places and traveled extensively and and all of that. But you know he is you know, sort of famously from like, not just the South, but kind of like middle of nowhere South and a Christian scientist. Um, so I assume a lot of this is, is Jerry Jewell's influence and Frank Oz's influence. Um, but like this sketch in particular, I mean, the Cynthia Birdley character, as you note, it's like extremely, you know, friend Drescher before friend Drescher. Um, but again, sort of thinking about like what was going on in 70s culture and, you know, like, you know, Woody Allen, Kramer versus Kramer. Like there was such a, like the monoculture was such a different thing. Like I, I imagine that like the Gogolala Jubilee jug band went and saw Kramer versus Kramer and loved it. And like, <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't weird in the way that it might be now. And I'm, and I'm going to be thinking about that for a really long time. <laughs> well, I said it. I'm glad it worked. Um, I'm going to be wondering whether they can eat popcorn. I'm going to go with yes. They have, they have very few teeth for it to get stuck in. Anyway, <laughs> I just, I just find it interesting there's a lot of influences here. Obviously there's the jug band stuff as well. And, and, and there's the music hall stuff as well. It's not just that, but I, I found this sketch and, uh, as bad as it was the, um, <laughs> the heavily Yiddish accented professor sketch, extremely striking in this episode, starring a, a British, a Jewish, but a British, um, guest star. Very notable. It was a lot. It, it was a lot. Um, I just wanted to note that uh, Cynthia Birdley struck me as being like if Fran Drescher cosplayed as Marsha Wallace from the Bob Newhart show. (laughs) It's like whatever the middle ground between those two people is that that's what she reminded me of. There's also a gestalt Gesundheit joke that I'm sure killed in 76. Right. I mean, it kills in my house still, but that's my house. (laughs) So there's this very strange bit that opens and closes the episode, um, which I found very charming. And it's very possible that you disagreed because we disagree about this episode. But let's just listen to it and see. But I was going to sit down on my dressing room chair, you know, and it walked away. Oh, well, well, that was a Muppet. See, that chair is married to the show's writer. Who's the writer? The hat rack. This show was written by a hat rack? Uh (laughs) Oh, yeah. It's extraordinary. Oh, well, you see, anything can be a Muppet. In, in fact, in this next sketch, you are going to be a Muppet. I am charmed by the idea that anything can be a Muppet. I mean, I do like their commitment to the bit that the hat rack got a credit at the end. I've just been talking to your show's writer. He's a man of many talents. He's there with an actual hat rack. Yes, wears more than one hat. Hi, <laughs> uh, yeah, Peter. Hey, listen, it's been great having you, although I must admit I've been a little bit jealous. You have? I'm yep. jealous of you. I've always wanted to be a frog. 
This is like the third time now that uh, the guest star has made Kermit feel better at the end of the episode, <laughs> which I also <laughs> like. And then they're so committed to the bit that they actually put and the hat rack at the end of the writing credits, which, you know, again, like in 1976, who is even going to notice that it goes by so fast, um, but it's there and I love it. And, uh, you know, in a not great episode, it was a, a nice way to end. Thanks for listening to this episode of Muppeturgy. Join us next week for our discussion of the Bruce Forsyth episode. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Muppeturgy or on the web at Muppeturgy.com. If you like what we're doing, please spread the word and offer a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. Our theme music was composed and performed by Christy Bauer. Our show logo was created by Tom Brian Backus, and this episode was edited, as always, by David Levy, even though he exploded. Christy, please tell us about the song. Yes. <laughs> I mean, green contains multitudes. No, let's just keep naming off uh, (laughs) meanings for the word cool. (laughs) This podcast. Yeah. Oh, let's not.